You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, this is my friend Natasha, and uh, she is going to be reading our scripture for today, our teaching text. And so if you have a Bible, would you turn with us to 1 Corinthians chapter 13? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it's likely that this is a text that you've heard read before. If you were at a wedding over the summer months, as I was, it's, it's even possible that this was the section of scripture that was read at that ceremony. And sometimes when we hear scriptures read over and over again, it's easy for it to just kind of sound like noise. You kind of, kind of miss some of the depth and the meaning of it. And so as you hear the this, this scripture read this morning, I want to encourage you to try to listen with fresh ears at what the Holy Spirit might want to speak to us from the words of Paul this morning, okay? So would you stand to your feet with us? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it'll also be on the screen. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, let's pray, and then we'll unpack these verses together. Lord, we're so thankful for your word, and that you speak to us in really clear and profound ways. And so this morning, I pray that you would do that, that you'd use this ancient text, that you'd use your holy scripture to speak to our lives in the moments that we find ourselves in today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. Well, every year in the month of September, uh, it's been our practice to take some moments to, to refocus as a church on why we exist, on the purpose of our church. And uh, that's been our, our purpose from the very beginning. And, and that statement, the kind of central purpose, the vision of our church is that we exist to help all people become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's it. And while we said it in slightly different ways over the past nearly 50 years, and there's been little changes and nuance to the words that we've used, in essence, that has been our mission since our inception in 1974 helping all people become fully devoted followers of Jesus. In other words, we take the great commission of Jesus very seriously to go into all the nations and to make disciples, to baptize. We're not satisfied having received God's love in our day-to-day lives and then going about kind of quietly waiting for Jesus to return. No, we want to tell as many people as we possibly can about the hope we have in him. Anyone who will listen, we want to share and see them to grow in their discipleship to Jesus. That's a core characteristic of our church. It has been for nearly five decades. And then last year, our, our, our pastors and our elders, our staff, kind of looked at how God's asking us to do that. Because while we could, those words are, in some ways, very clearly articulate the heartbeat of our church, you could argue that that's been the goal of every Christian church, 
It's kind of a restating of the Great Commission. But how has God uniquely called CA Church, Coquitlam Alliance Church, to participate in his redemptive work? What does it look like for us to join in on this disciple-making movement that his followers have been on about since his ascension? And through prayer and discernment and meeting and workshopping and edits, we sense the Lord leading us to, to focus on five strategic areas. We rolled this out last fall. Those areas are our Jesus' mission, Jesus' presence, spiritual formation, extravagant generosity, and gospel multiplication. And over the next few months, we're going to be hitting on those themes over and over again because we're launching a brand new series next week, um, Studying the Book of Acts. We've called this series Witness, coming right from the words of Jesus where he says that we'll be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, and and so, so we'll be looking at that. And, and as a preaching team, we really sense that in this season of our church, especially as, as Pastor Mark and Diane move towards retirement, this is a perfect time in the life of our church to kind of recenter and say, you know, our mission is not changing, and to look at, at the life of the apostles and the early church as our guide into the future. So Pastor David will kick that off next week, looking at Acts chapter 1. But before we get there, I, I, I really wanted to spend some time today in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13, because here's what I've been struck with over the last number of weeks, as I've been praying about this new ministry year that's kicking off, and even seeking God as I step into a new sort of pastoral role in our church. I've been struck with the really sobering reality that we can do all the right things. We can know all the right theology. We can witness and evangelize and go on missions trips and feed the poor and have the greatest youth ministry and the best music and we can still get it wrong. It's possible that our pews would be filled with the most theologically astute people out of any church in the lower mainland and that that we'd have the most amazing humanitarian initiatives and that we would still miss the mark. According to Paul, In the words that were just read for us, there is one essential ingredient to living out the way of Jesus. And without that ingredient, everything that we do is in vain. What am I talking about? Love. Love. And and 1 Corinthians 13 isn't a one-off passage where Paul has this sort of soapbox moment telling the church in Corinth about his own personal desires for the culture of their community. No, Nearly every New Testament author comes back time and time again to this, these themes, of the, highlighting the critical importance of our heart's motivation, of the need for love to be the motive of all we do in the Christian life. And furthermore, these biblical authors didn't come up with these ideas themselves. This focus on love as critical, as central, really finds itself rooted in the teachings of Jesus. Look at Mark chapter 12, verse 30. When the Pharisees asked Jesus what the most important commandment is, out of all the commandments in the Torah, there were 613 options that he could have chose. What did he say? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else hinges on that, both this this vertical and horizontal love, a love for God and a love of neighbor, God and one another. And what seems pretty clear in Scripture is that you can't have one without the other. It's impossible to love God if you don't love the people around you. You can't have this thriving devotional life and this abiding relationship with God without also having a genuine love for his church. I grew up in an era of Christianity where there was this kind of hyper-focus on the individualistic nature of my relationship with God, me and Jesus, my personal relationship with him. I love him, he loves me. And there absolutely is a personal, private aspect of our relationship with God, no doubt. There's also a communal aspect. 
if we truly love God, it naturally overflows into this love of neighbor. One of Jesus' disciples and his closest friends, John, he said it like this. He said, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he's given us this commandment. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Now, I think loving our brother and sister is actually the hardest people to love. <laughs> and, and I don't necessarily mean our biological families, although they can be very difficult to love at times as well. Uh, but but Paul, or John's writing here supersedes the natural family and, and speaks of the whole body of Christ at large. You know, that person in our community group that has a strong opinion about everything, or, or that guy at the 930 service who, who made that post on Facebook about whatever it was, or, or that friend or that so-called friend who said those words that I'll never forget. Jesus says, whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen, and I might add to that, not only the ones that are easy to love, but also the ones that are more difficult to love, cannot love God whom they've not seen. Personally, I find it easier to love people kind of abstractly or to love people from a distance. I much more naturally find a feeling of love and compassion for people that I drive past on East Hastings or for the poverty-stricken community in Mexico or for the orphans in the Philippines or the persecuted church overseas. I feel this deep love and compassion stir up in me for people who are out there, who are far away. But sometimes it's hard to show that same love and compassion to the people who live in my own home. Or to that, that Christian who should know better, but they still do whatever they do. Because the people who are close to us can often offend us. And sometimes the people closest to us expose things, even within our own hearts, that we don't like to see. Whether that be anger, or irritability, or pride, or self-consciousness. So in order to avoid dealing with our own stuff... We often build up walls between us and other people. I mean, maybe we wouldn't use the word hate to describe the feelings we have towards a specific brother or sister. But it would definitely be a stretch to say that we love them. Tolerate them? Sure. But love? Ugh. Depends how you define it. Over the last few weeks, I have been haunted by, by these words from Scripture that, that were read for us on the onset of our time together, that without love, I gain nothing. I'm a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. Without love, all of my labors are in vain. But why? Why is love such a critical part of living out the Christian life? Well, I want to look at a few reasons that we see in the text that we just read. Reasons why a love for one another is critical to living out the Christian life. The, the first is this. Without love, our differences will divide us rather than edify us. They'll divide us rather than edify us. 1 Corinthians 12, it lays out this beautiful vision that, that each person is made uniquely, that God has gifted each person differently, and these differences aren't random, they're purposeful. They're for the edification and the building up of the body. God has wired each of us uniquely, and, and he's placed us in this family for a specific reason. And the church in Corinth that Paul was originally writing to, they, they, they were incredibly gifted people. They were killing it by every earthly standard. They were growing. They were thriving. They were passionate. They were talented and good at what they were doing. But they didn't like each other. There was ongoing conflict and strife in the body. They were quarreling about petty things. And then Paul steps up and he says, yeah, that's so great. Give, the, the, give yourselves a golf clap for all your excellent ministry initiatives. 
but it's all for nothing if it's not for love. If you've ever heard the, the body of Christ or the, the church referred to as the body of Christ, this is one of the primary sections of scripture, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, where that idea comes from. Paul uses the analogy of the human body to make his point. He says, one person in the church is, is like the hand, another's like the foot, these are the eyes, the ears, and so on. And in order for the body to function, you actually need all of the parts. Well, what good would a collection of eyes be on their own? Or what good would a foot be if there was no brain telling it to walk and to move? God's made us all differently, with different gifts and abilities, and he's brought us together. He's forged us to one another. We make sense when the other body parts are present. One has the gift to teach. Another has the gift of evangelism, leadership, entrepreneurial abilities, and not only that, but he's also given us different personalities and passions and desires, and we come from different families of origin, and we have different lived experiences. And it's this beautiful mosaic, or to use the language of Paul, it's this, this beautiful body. The problem comes when the foot starts telling the hand to stop be a hand and to start being more footsy. Or when the ear starts to, to feel like they're doing something wrong because they don't see anything like the eye does. How quickly our God-given uniquenesses can divide us. These gifts that we're meant to actually edify, that we're meant to build up and, and to spur one another on can create fractures in the bones of the structure of the body. It happens when we start to compare ourselves to one another. You know, I even see it happen within my own self. When I say, man, I wish I could teach the Bible like so-and-so. Or, or that I had the gift of evangelism like this other pastor on our staff. Or that I had the gift of hospitality like this other person. Or you know, that I looked like this person or, or could do these things that other people do. And over time, rather than being grateful, experiencing gratitude for the uniqueness and the blessing that that person is to me and to the body of Christ, I start to put them down with my words. I start to get jealous and to push them down or, or, or to push them away. Division can also happen when, when we think that everyone should experience God and, and, and the world the same way that we do. But the eye sees, and the ear hears, and the nose smells, and the hand touches, and the foot moves. And, and so we should expect that we won't all see the world the same way. We won't all experience God the same way, and that's okay. That's by design. And because we're experiencing life and God from different vantage points, there will be tensions from time to time. There will be conflicts that come up. But those differences can and will, if we let them, give us this much more broad and holistic picture of God. Every Bible scholar that I looked at this week seemed to agree that, that the placing of the love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, right after the discussion about the body of Christ and the uniqueness of the body, was a very deliberate decision. It's sort of one big run-on sentence about spiritual gifts in the body of Christ and then the critical importance of love as a sort of operating system. Paul explains the mechanics of how the body of Christ works together and then without skipping a beat, he goes all in on the need for love. Love is the operating system. So why is it so critical to the Christian life? Because without love, our differences will divide us. And then secondly, and this might sound strange, but without love... Our Christian efforts are annoying. <laughs> annoying to God, to one another, and to the world. What do I mean by that? Well, if you've ever had a sibling or a neighbor who, who is passionate about playing the drums and whose passion for drums led them to play early in the morning or late into the night, then you know exactly what Paul's analogy about a clanging gong and a resounding cymbal is all about. Anyone have a family member who plays the drums or a neighbor? Or, yeah, I see you. I feel that. 
Um, but, but Paul says, without love, everything we do, all the good works, all our sacrifices, all our spiritual talk and activities is useless. And not only that, but it's annoying. Speaking of, of playing the drums, uh, when we were doing our Easter services outside not too long ago uh, during the, the pandemic, uh, we were doing them in a tent, and uh, we were right in the middle of a service. Pastor Cam was preaching. He was right in the middle of his message, kind of climbing to the, the climax of his sermon and, and into the altar call, and there was this gap for a moment, and the neighbor across the street started to play a drums cover of Thunderstruck by uh, ACDC. <laughs> Completely ruined the moment. But Paul says, without love, everything we do is a clanging gong and a resounding cymbal. It's noise. It just keeps ringing on and on and on. And that's harsh. But it's true. And Paul's words have have overtones of Amos chapter 5, where God's calling the people of Israel to repentance. They've been bad neighbors to the surrounding communities. They've been cruel to the poor. They've been self-centered and self-righteous. And this is what God says to them. This This is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, sort of a modern translation of this text. It says, I can't stand your religious meetings. This is God speaking. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. In other words, God is saying, all the things you're busying yourself doing in my name are meaningless unless it's rooted in a heart of love. God's saying, don't focus on yourself or even your religious practices. Pursue justice for the oppressed. If your worship of me isn't leading to a love of neighbor, then you don't even know me at all. Does God hate conferences and conventions? No. Does he, does he hate when we work on strategic projects to advance the mission of the church? No, of, of course not. What he hates is when we do all those things to puff ourselves up, when we care for the poor for our PR moment or for that post on social media, when we use our God-given gifts uh, to build a platform for ourselves, to stroke our own egos, that symbol-clanging noise, and that's what Paul's referring to. We can do all the right things, but if our motives are wrong, rather than blessing God, it makes him want to plug his ears. He wants nothing to do with it. Without love, our, our efforts are also annoying to the world. You know, I, I, I don't know if you've ever encountered an angry street evangelist standing on a soapbox kind of sharing a message or not, um, but, uh, but, but it doesn't seem to be the most strategic strategy, okay? And I don't know what the motive of their heart is or why they feel compelled to do what they do, but I have seen the expression on the faces of people as they walk past and hear this kind of presentation of the gospel. I use the word gospel loosely because gospel means good news, but without love, it often doesn't sound like good news at all. You know what a loveless sharing of the gospel sounds like to a non-Christian? Like a clanging gong and a resounding cymbal. But I don't think that angry street preachers are the only ways that the world experiences this resounding gong. I think it also happens, and maybe most commonly happens in our day and age through social media. Christians using their Facebook profiles or Twitter feeds as a megaphone to spread whether it be political propaganda or even just Christian articles with brash, overgeneralized statements about people or groups of people who, though they may have a different worldview than us, or though though they may even have a different sexual ethic or, or different opinion, they are image bearers of God. They're carriers of the Imago Dei. Why do we do that? Why do we use our social media as like weapons sometimes? To show that we're smart? 
to win a sort of culture war. I don't know about you, but I have never seen, or maybe I'll say I've very rarely seen meaningful conversations about hot-button topics happen online. Sharing a clickbait article to my newsfeed is not evangelism. And most often, you know what it sounds like to the world? A clanging gong and a resounding cymbal. And we're trying to talk, we're trying to share the gospel, but all they hear is noise. And I'm not saying that we don't talk about the hard stuff or challenge people on their views of God and the world, but following Jesus' example, those conversations best happen around a table with food, a warm meal, and a glass of wine. Or at a coffee shop with a, with a latte in hand and a kind and a gentle spirit. Unfortunately, I think the pandemic was especially bad on our Christian witness. As, as followers of Jesus attacked one another, or canceled one another because of differences in opinions about medical treatments or sanitation practice or facial coverings, and, and then it overflowed into vision about surrounding or, or division about surrounding issues in our culture. In many ways, the last two years was not the finest moment for the church. It wasn't the finest moment for all of human society. But unfortunately, the, the church that should be this beacon of hope and light in a dark and divided world in many cases, look just like everyone else, fractured, divided, and disunified. You know what gets the attention of the world? A true and a genuine love. It's the most evangelistic strategy that we have, or at least it has been historically. You know, in a few weeks, we're going to be walking through Acts chapter 2 as part of our new series, where there's this beautiful kind of section of verses where the author Luke is describing the culture of the early church. As they gathered together and they ate together and they shared everything they had with one another, caring for each other's needs. Where one had lack, the other one stepped up. It's this beautiful vision of the Christian life. And then in verse 47 it says, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. See, as the world sort of peered in and they saw this countercultural society of people who normally in culture wouldn't be caught dead together because of their differences of opinion, or their upbringings, or, or where they belonged. They wouldn't be caught dead with one another, but they were sitting around a table breaking bread, worshiping together, caring for each other's needs, extending the welcome of God. And it got the world's attention. You have a Pharisee, and a zealot, and a prostitute, and a tax collector sitting around a table eating a warm bowl of hummus and, and, and a pita. And as the story of the church unfolds, you see every ethnic group, both slaves and free, male and female, together unified because of Christ. And that love for one another, that unity, it stood in stark contrast to the culture where they lived. The way of the world was look out for you and your own. The way of the world was, was, was you, scratch your back, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back, this sort of patronage system. Relationships were about what I can get, what I can take. And then in the midst of that was this countercultural society of people whose allegiance to Jesus caused them to love one another in these beautiful and seemingly radical ways. What does that look like? What does it look like for the church to live out this kind of love that we've experienced from Jesus, live it out to one another? Well, our text in 1 Corinthians gives us some great handles. The first is it looks like kindness over contempt. Kindness over contempt. The dictionary definition of contempt is the feeling of a, that a person is worthless, beneath consideration, deserving of scorn. In other words, contempt is to dishonor, to put down, to gossip, to use the power that we have to tear down rather than to build up. 
Kindness is the opposite of that. I think it's one of the most underrated virtues of the Christian life. Kindness is what it looks like for unconditional love to be lived out in action. And when I say kindness, don't, don't think weakness. To be kind is not weak. To be kind is actually courageous, especially when it's not the expected response in a given situation. Kindness is not just niceness. It's not being a pushover. Kindness is intentionally putting yourself in the shoes of another person and doing for someone else what you wish that they would do for you, whether they deserve it or not, to honor the image of God, to honor the imago Dei and the people around us. So in a church marked by love, there's kindness over contempt. There's also curiosity over criticism. This is a big one. A posture of curiosity changes everything. It's so easy to be critical about other people. So easy to critique others when you don't know their story, when you don't know what led to the moment that they find themselves in today. And we all do this on a day-to-day basis. We make assumptions in our mind, whether willing, willfully or not, about the, the motives that people have. But, but love doesn't jump to critique or casting judgment. Love leads to curiosity. About a year or so ago, um, I could feel my heart getting hard towards a person who, who I felt was posting some really inappropriate stuff on social media, really harsh stuff. And, uh, and I, I felt that the Lord was asking me to meet up with this person for coffee, and I procrastinated, and I put it off, and I didn't want to, and I could feel every time I would see this person, I could feel my blood was starting to boil as I felt kind of angry and frustrated. And after some time and kind of ignoring this prompt to go for coffee, I did ask this person to go for coffee. And we met at this uh, little coffee shop just outside of Vancouver. And as we sat down, I wanted to call him out on everything I thought he was doing that was inappropriate and wrong. Um, but in the moment when we sat down, I just asked a couple questions. I said, help me understand what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, why you're saying the things you're saying. And he began to share his story about how the things that he was experiencing in the world was giving him a sort of PTSD from growing up in another country overseas. And he started to unpack some of the rationale of where he was at. And, uh, and I started to feel my heart change from this kind of hard and angry and sort of judging him for what he was saying and what he was doing. I started to feel compassion. And I still needed to confront him on the things that he was sharing online. But it came from a very different place after hearing his story. It came from a place of compassion. Curiosity leads to compassion. It's very humanizing. I think about Jesus at the woman at the well in in John 4. Rather than casting judgment on her for her promiscuous lifestyle, rather than being critical of her for having five husbands and all these other things that there were about her that weren't right, he asked questions. He, He showed care and concern. He led with curiosity. Now, he didn't compromise the truth. He still said what needed to be said. He leaned in where he needed to, but rather than criticizing her, he sat with her. He heard her out, and that story ends with her becoming a lead evangelist to the Samaritan people, going and telling everyone she knows about this Jesus. He listened to her, and then he spoke the truth in love. What would it look like in our relationships to embrace that kind of curiosity, to refrain from criticizing or writing a narrative about a person's motives or why they say the things they say or why they've ended up in this place that they're at, and instead, being curious, asking questions. The last point I want to look at is, is unity over preference. 
A church marked by a true and genuine love embodies unity over preference. In, in chapter 12, Paul writes, there should be no division in the body, but its parts should have equal concern for each other. It's so easy for churches to divide over secondary issues. Now, in so many ways, I am preaching to the choir on this one because CA Church has had a long history of, of unity and love for one another, but that doesn't happen accidentally. And just because we've experienced unity in the past doesn't necessarily mean that we'll experience unity into the future. It takes a real intentionality and a fighting for unity to refuse to let our preferences or, or the differences among us to divide us. We're a diverse community of people filled with people from all different backgrounds, and that's beautiful. So were Jesus' 12 disciples, but despite their differences, they were united under the banner of Christ. Hey, there are some things that are worth dividing over, worth fighting for. You know, issues of the Trinity, the centrality of Scripture, inerrancy of Scripture, the centrality of the cross, Jesus as the exclusive way to the Father. There's core doctrines that are essential to the Christian faith, hills that we absolutely should die on. But in most churches, those aren't the things that divide, that bring division. Most churches don't divide over central doctrines. Some do. But most, in most cases, division comes when I want to do things my way, when I elevate my preferences to critical importance. But a church marked by love keeps the main thing the main thing. We're not going for uniformity. We're not robots. We're diverse and different and unique, but we are after unity. To be a church whose love for one another leads us to, to care for the needs of the people around us and to put their needs above our own, where we lay down our preferences, where we put away our soapboxes, we extend grace upon grace upon grace to one another as we fall short. Okay, in conclusion, what I don't want you to walk away from this message thinking is that I'm saying, you know, go and try to be more loving or go be kind or go be unified. The only chance that we have at being a church marked by love is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Acknowledging that on our own, we'll continue to fall short. That despite our best efforts, we will not love God or one another as we should or even as we want to. This has to be a work of the Spirit in our lives. Our flesh will fail. And there'll be days where, quite honestly, you'll wake up and not want to love other people. Where it's easier to, to put my needs before the needs of the people around us. But that's where we need the Spirit of God to breathe afresh on us again. We can't conjure up enough strength on our own to love like Jesus. We need to experience the power of the gospel each and every day. Experience his love. Live into his love and then love because he first loved us. Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Maybe today you're, you're here for the first time. You know, September is oftentimes a time that people kind of reconnect to church or look for a church family to be part of. And maybe you're wondering what kind of church we are. Uh, we are certainly not perfect, and if you spend a few weeks with us, you will find that out pretty quick. Um, but we are striving to become this kind of church. We, we are, we're not perfect, but we are becoming, by God's grace, a church of genuine love for one another, a community of people who are so incredibly different from one another, but whose love for each other is true and genuine and runs deep. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. That while we were still sinners, that you died for us, you gave your life for us, you sacrificed so that we could live. 
And I pray that as a church family that we would live in response to that great and beautiful truth. That we would experience your love on a daily basis and then we would show that love to one another. That we would be the church, that we would be your body that you desire. A church that's united. A church that puts love for one another above all else. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.